The scripture reading today is James 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. It's good to be here and worshiping with you this morning. We have been in a series called Relationships, a mess worth making. And basically what we decided to do in the fall was travel along in the scriptures with uh, our home meetings, have a study each week. One of the ways you can get connected at Liberty is to be involved with a home meeting. And that's the way we know and care for one another. And so we're following through the text in our home meeting that we follow through on Sunday here. And we're looking for things that get in the way of our relationships in Christ. Christ has given so much for us. And he's, uh, he's brought about in the gospel a transformation of our very lives at the very center of who we are. And that includes relationship with one another. But what stands in the way? And so we're taking time to look at that together uh, throughout a 14-part series on relationships. Today we're looking at James 1, 4, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And I want to I open this way. <clears throat> Some of you might have heard different things about the way that you grow as a Christian. Some of you might have heard different things. So, for example, how do you grow as a Christian? Well, you read your Bible and you pray. Okay. Spiritual disciplines. Or it might be that uh, engaging in mercy and justice and serving the poor and the marginalized is a way that you grow in your faith in the gospel as a Christian. Okay, that's true too. But at the top of most lists, I haven't found this myself, and I bet you haven't found it either. The top of most lists is missing this. Conflict. Conflict is a significant way that you grow in the gospel as a Christian. So today we're going to be looking at conflict. We're going to look at how in the gospel, in Christ, being in Christ, your identity in him, rooted and established in him. Remember we said last week that what he's doing in the gospel is a renovation project, not only of you, but of others around you. And so that you've got to come to that humbly 
and yet boldly. And so we're talking today about how to grow in your ability to handle conflict in a redemptive way because Jesus transformed us in the gospel to engage in conflict the way that he does. And we're going to look at just three things. We're going to look at our need. We're going to look at our hearts and our God. And we're going to look at our way forward. Our need, our hearts, and our God, and our way forward. All right, well, Jesus transforms us in the gospel to engage in conflict the way that he does. Why? Because we have a tremendous need. We have a tremendous need, and we often are blind to it. We don't see it. Something is desperately wrong with us. What's wrong? There's a conflict underneath the conflict that we have with one another going on. There's a why for why we fight with one another and quarrel with one another. Verse 2, James says it. He says it straight out. It's not because the person has offended you or did something wrong to you. Verse 2, he says it's because of your desire that you fight and that you quarrel. Epithumeo is the word that he uses. Literally over desire, turning good things into ultimate things. (sighs) Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, and and it's a very famous book. It's one of the most famous books ever. And one of the things that he wrote into a a letter to a friend later was exactly what what is the one ring to rule them all? What is that about? What is that one ring about? And Tolkien wrote about that, and he said, you know what it's about? It's an idol magnifier. It takes whatever you think is good and valuable and that you need in your life to be who you are and it magnifies it and it twists it so that it will twist you and claim you and run you into the ground. Remember Gandalf says, I would use this ring for good, but it would destroy me in the process. Well, the the truth of the matter is that our hearts are naturally like that. Epithemeo. Our hearts are naturally idol magnifiers. Okay, so for example, acceptance. Now, it's a reasonable thing. It's a good thing to want acceptance, right? It's a reasonable thing. And I can hear you, I can hear you talking. I've talked like this myself. I like to be accepted. And the pain of rejection is not, it's just not something I want in my life. When I'm rejected, it's like I can't remember what ever being accepted feels like at all. Now, if this describes you, If acceptance is important to you in this way, think for a minute. Think of a time when you had a conflict with someone because of the way you felt rejected by them. When you had a conflict over the way that you were not accepted by them. Think for a minute. Literally, in your mind, capture that moment. Do you have it? Can you remember the words that you used? Can you remember how you approached them? What were your words like? in response to the person who didn't accept you? Did your words build them up? Did it fit the occasion? Did it give grace to those who are here, like we looked last week? Did it do that? Or did it spill out, because you weren't getting the acceptance you were seeking, into fighting and quarreling? Or, even more, perhaps instead of fighting, you chose instead to withdraw into the shelter of avoidance. Did you push out into fight? Or did you avoid it? Neither one of those, the Bible says, is peacemaking in the gospel. It's not the option that we need to grow into Christ's likeness. It's not how it's supposed to work. Fight and flight are not the peacemaking that Jesus is forming in you. Fight and flight do not handle conflict in the way Jesus has freed you to handle conflict in him. There's something wrong with the way that you handle conflict. You desire, James says, but you do not have. 
You desire, but you do not have. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask, or you ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Just spend it on your passions. We're motivated, friends. We're motivated in our conflict to get what we want. Jesus says you've got to lay that down. You've got to lay that down. You can't be driven by that. It'll consume you like the one ring would consume Gandalf if he used it. What's going on inside of you in in that conflict? Your heart is an idol magnifier for acceptance. You've turned a good thing, a very good thing, being acceptance, being accepted by others. It's a very good thing. You've turned it into an ultimate thing. You've turned it into the thing that you need to have identity, to be whole, to be significant. And you fear the opposite of what you want in acceptance. You fear rejection. And you'll either fight to protect your desire of acceptance or you'll retreat into the shelter of avoidance in order to protect your desire for it. That is spilling out over. It's a good thing spilling out over into idolatry. Why do you fight? Why do you have conflicts among you? Because these things are too important. Let's take a look at a few common ones. I mean, that was acceptance, but maybe you struggle with power. It's important for me to be empowered, you say. Being told what to do robs me of that. All right, so I'm going to ask you, what what happens when somebody intentionally prevents you from being empowered by telling you what to do and you enter into conflict with them? What spills out over the banks of your life into your words as you deal with them? Your heart's an idle magnifier. Or consider this, control's another one. If you're somebody who says, hey, I like to be competent. I like to be in control of my life. I like to take care and order the details. And when things are unpredictable, it makes me really uneasy. Okay, so I ask you, what happens when someone makes life unpredictable and gets in the way of your competency and the control that you exhibit in your life? What happens when that spills out into conflict? What are your words like? Are you treating people? Are you speaking to people the way that Jesus would speak to you? Or are you spilling out into fight or flight? Recognition is another one. I like to be recognized for what I contribute. Being overlooked for something I did really gets my back up. I don't like to be overlooked. I like to be recognized. All right? What happens when somebody overlooks you intentionally and intentionally prevents you from being recognized for what you contribute? What happens when you enter into conflict with them? These things, friend, are warning signs. They're warning signs. They're red flags that say, whoa, wait a minute, something's, something's wrong with the way that I'm entering into conflict here. I asked a friend recently, what is the excuse that you have? Can you justify in your life a time for not showing fruit of the Spirit if the gospel's true? Can you justify it? Can you give a good reason for spilling out into fight or flight? Can you do that? And he put his head down like I've put my head down with that own conversation with myself. And he said, no, I can't find a justification for doing that. That's right. Our hearts are idol magnifiers. There are lots of other things that we struggle with in this way. Comfort, pleasure, all of those are good things. But they so easily become over-desires. Epithumeo, Right? Over desires for each of us. And James says that what, that's what leads to conflict that we have with others. Our over desires, our hearts, our idol magnifiers. Acceptance, power, control, recognition, comfort, and pleasure, they're all blessings. 
They're all blessings to be enjoyed by God. Don't mishear me on that. I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm saying when they become sinful, when we allow them to move from blessings that he gives us to the things that replace him as our blesser, our relationship with him, our intimacy with him, then it all falls apart. So we have our need, okay? We have our need for Jesus to transform us in our conflict. But we also have our hearts and our God. Did you know that our hearts, that our need stretches to the very fabric of who we are? It stretches to the very center of who we are in our hearts. Verse 4, James says, that we're guilty of adultery. He uses that image for us. We're guilty of adultery. Because of the conflict underneath our conflicts, it begins with conflict in our relationship with God. Why do we need so much help? Because our conflict underneath the conflicts that we have with one another actually begins in a conflict that we have in our relationship with God. It means marital unfaithfulness to God. That's the, that's the image that James is using here. Marital unfaithfulness to God. Making something or someone other than God first in our lives. This is scathing. James is scathing in his commentary on us. It's scathing because we're actually guilty of adultery, he says. Spiritual adultery. When we have these over-desires. Well, how is that? The image of adultery means we're married to God. What does it mean to be married, let alone married to God? What does it mean? Eugene Peterson has a quote. uh, He's quoting Paul in his paraphrase of the Bible, the message, on this very topic. And this is Eugene Peterson's answer, the way that that he quotes Paul and paraphrases it. What is marriage like? He said, out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness, and that is now how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they've already won in marriage. Does one abuse his own body? Does he? No. He feeds it and he pampers it, and that's how Christ treats us, the church, since we're part of his body. And this is why a man leaves father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one, fre- one flesh. This is a huge mystery. And I don't pretend to understand it all. What is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church. And this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself and loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband. You see, marriage, in its core, is based upon a promise. It's based upon a promise. When you make that promise, you're making an appointment with yourself in the future. You're saying, I don't know what our lives will be like and what tragedies and what joys will have taken place five, 10, 15, 50 years from now. I'm not sure. But this I promise, 
that I will be there for you. I will be there for you, despite what happens. I'm going to be standing by your side. What this does is creates an oasis of predictability in a completely unpredictable world. It brings with it a security that is necessary for a relationship to truly flourish. People who do not get married usually will admit that they avoid it because they don't want the messiness of divorce if they decide to leave. That's not true for everybody, but there are often people who think like this. In other words, they're unwilling to commit and trust, lean on completely. They're hedging their bet. They simply have not opened themselves completely to the other. The fact is, love based on a promise is far more solid and costly than just sentimental love. The marriage relationship can be the most intimate if both persons are vulnerable to each other. Only a promise can create the security to open up completely and commit oneself totally to one another. And only a promise can give your emotions and desires the backbone, the solidity that they need for lasting relationship. And so we're married to God in that way. And we come to God through Jesus and what he's done in the gospel. And yet James says, when you over-desire, you're adulterous. You're forgetting your promise. You're forgetting God's promise to you. You're treating it as though it doesn't exist. Wake up. Why are you fighting? These are warning signs. Look at them. Trace them back. It's your over-desire that's causing this. And it's because you've forgotten your first love. What happens when we live this way toward God? What happens when we commit spiritual adultery through our over-desire with other things and other people that we think that we need more than God? What happens with your relationship with God when you do that, when I do that? What are the effects of adultery? Now, it's no secret I've told you before, I'm kind of sappy when it comes to movies, and I particularly like romantic movies. So there are two at the top of my list for romance. They're they're rated R, so I can't recommend... They're not family films, not family-friendly films. You're going to have to guard yourself if you're going to watch them. But um, I like like Love Actually, and I like Crazy Stupid Love. Have you seen those two? If you're into romances, in, in sort of the with the presentation of reality of the way that life kind of, we blunder onto each other without getting these things that I'm talking about. They're great examples of that. And there are two examples in each of, the, there's an example in each of those movies where the characters, the main characters, realize that the other person has been unfaithful, has committed adultery. There's, uh, with uh, Love Actually, Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman have a fantastic scene. They play, Emma plays Karen and Alan plays Harry. Karen says, in a moment where he's unsuspecting. He thinks he's gotten away with it. He thinks he's gotten away with it. And it's an unsuspecting moment. And Karen's walking beside him after a school play. And she catches up with him shoulder to shoulder. And she says, tell me, if you were in my position, what would you do? And Harry says, what position is that? Karen, imagine your husband bought a gold necklace and come Christmas gave it to somebody else. Harry said, Karen. Karen said, would you wait around to find out if it's just the necklace or if it's sex and the necklace or if worst of all, it's a necklace and love? Would you stay knowing life would always be just a little bit worse or would you cut and run? Harry responded, God, 
I'm so in the wrong, a classic fool. And Karen said, yes, but you've also made a fool out of me. You've made the life I lead foolish too. When we do this with our desires and our relationship with God who's promised everything to us and we've promised back to him, it's that kind of destruction. It's that kind of tearing. It's that kind of undoing. And it breaks our hearts. It's not what we need to flourish. And it breaks God's heart too. Julianne Moore and Steve Carell in Crazy Stupid Love are in a car together. Julianne plays Emily and Steve plays Cal. And Emily and Cal are driving home in a residential area about 35 miles per hour. And Emily, unaware that Cal is now completely emotionally flooded from how she's been talking to him instead of with him, begins by saying, 25 years of marriage and you have nothing to say? I'll just say it. I slept with somebody. Cal said, if you keep talking, I'm going to get out of the car. Interrupted by Emily, continuing to talk over him. But I think the fact that I did it shows how broken we are. Interrupted by Cal, making good on his statement. Okay, unbuckles his seatbelt and opens the door, falling out of the moving car at 35 miles an hour. <laughs> Emily's still talking over Cal, unaware of him. How much we really need... Oh my God, Cal! There's an utter disconnection that happens. There's an utter disconnection. We desensitize ourselves to our promise and to his promise to us. When we commit adultery spiritually with our Father, our God, our Holy Spirit, our elder brother Jesus, three persons, one God. James, using the same image of adultery to show how our over-desires are put rift in our relationship with God, we fail our promise to him. And we treat all of the vulnerability between us as though it doesn't matter. We treat it as though it doesn't matter. We treat a sacrifice as though it doesn't matter. We fail our promise to him. We make God's magnificent promise to us seem foolish. We stop listening to God in any kind of intimacy and give that intimacy away to others with whom it's not safe. James' statement, a scathing statement about us, why do we have conflict? Spiritual adultery against God. We're forgetting his promise and we forget our own. But James' remark is also also very encouraging, also very encouraging to us. When we are guilty of friendship with the world, he says, you know what that implies? It implies that God is our only rightful friend, our only rightful spouse, the true spouse. An absolutely holy God who will not and cannot tolerate sin has made us his bride. Guys, that includes you, your bride. Did you know that? You got to get your bride on this week. You got to get your bride on this week. He cannot tolerate sin, but he's made us his bride and friend through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's our hearts. We have a need, but it extends much further than you think. It extends to the very core of who we are, our hearts. But also our God. What does Jesus do with people who forsake him for something or someone else? How does he answer Emma Thompson's question? What would you do? What would you do? Five and six. He yearns jealously for you. He yearns jealously for you. Jesus is jealous and cares deeply about his relationship with you. He's roused to action on your behalf. You know, in the movie Crazy Stupid Love, one of the things that happens is that 
uh, Cal's son talked with him about Emily's adultery. So here's the high school teenager talking and giving advice to his father about the adultery that's happened with his wife. And he said in effect this, Dad, you always said that if some, if you love someone, you'd fight for them. Well, go fight for mom. Be roused to action on her behalf. Care deeply about your relationship with her. When you wonder from Jesus, and when I wonder from Jesus in our over-desires, when we wonder from him, the spirit he has poured out on you and on me in the gospel, who now lives in you, becomes very concerned and very jealous, and he's roused to action on your behalf. He's roused to action because he loves you, and he fights for you, and he's roused to action on your behalf. A helpful way to translate the word jealousy is zealous. God is zealous to do whatever it takes to reign, to regain the affection of our hearts because he loves us. And he did. How does he go about regaining our affections? Well, first, he moved heaven and earth. He overcame sin and death. He was treated as an adulterer himself as he took your place on the cross. As he suffered separation from the beloved. As he stood in your place faithfully, keeping his promise even though you haven't. So he stayed there. But what does he do now as he gives you his spirit? What does he do now? He uses us. He uses conflict. God uses our conflict with others to regain our affection. He loves you too much to leave you as you are. And so look at the conflict that you've experienced this week. And look at the conflict that you're potentially coming to in the coming week. This is the way that God regains your affection. Your wise, sovereign, and gracious Redeemer is acting on your behalf when he places these people into your life to be in conflict with. He's changing you. C.S. Lewis put it this way. That is why we must not be surprised if we are in a, for a rough time when a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected. He often feels that it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When trouble comes along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, he's disappointed. And these things he feels might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days. But why now? Why now? Lewis writes, because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him in situations where we'll have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. And he finishes this way. He says, I, must, I find I must borrow yet another parable from George MacDonald. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing. And so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. 
And so God enters into conflict as Jesus, the incarnate son, and he faces it head on so that you can be free to enter into conflict like him. And you have to remember that God uses conflict with others to regain our affection. And that he loves you enough to do that. Remember that when you enter into conflict this week. And when he pursues us and we humble ourselves and return to him, he then pours out even more grace. And that brings us to our last point. What's our way forward? What's our way forward? Verses 7 through 10 talk about the dynamics of repentance and faith. Talks about what we should do once he pursues us and regains our affections. First, you have to realize that there's a context for repentance and faith. There's a context. It's warfare. Verse 7, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Now, just as the one ring not only magnified idols, but drew evil towards itself. What was the problem of carrying the one ring? All manner of nastiness was after you and those around you. And it was going to undo you if it could. And it was coming your way. Well, the fact that our hearts are also idol magnifiers draw evil towards us. And that shouldn't surprise you. The Bible's full of warnings about it. Full of them. Listen to just a little of the logic that's used by Paul in different places. As Christians, you are to, quote, escape the snare of the devil, 2 Timothy 2, and to become more keenly aware of our enemy's deceitful schemes so that we would neither be outwitted by Satan or ignorant of his design, 2 Corinthians 2, but instead be more watchful as he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5. This is very real language about very real warfare, and you should know it's very real for you. If you have your own ring of power, your own idol magnifier, it's going to draw evil towards you. But we can be more watchful and we can resist the devil being attracted to our idol magnifying because in the gospel, we're in Jesus. We're in the mighty victory and reign of Jesus as he conquers. And knowing that who he is in us is greater than who he is in the world is a relationship that Satan cannot stand against. Note that James, James comments this. He says, resist the devil and what happens? What happens through you resisting? Satan flees from you. That's an extraordinary right. That's an extraordinary privilege. Why? Because Satan knows who your husband is and he does not want to be around when he shows up. Because he's going to throw down. And he's going to throw down on your behalf because he's promised to do so. He's willing to give his life for you. And he did. He gave everything to throw down for you so that now you're his. Satan knows that. He hates it. He works against it. But we need not tremble. Martin Luther wrote in the hymn, One little word shall fell him. That's how mighty our husband is. So you can resist, and Satan flees. But what, do these, what does resisting look like? And that's the actual dynamic of repentance. And repentance is twofold, and you've got to get into the habit of this. Repentance is, first, actually repenting. Verse 7, 8, 9, 10, submit yourself to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be single, not double-minded. Understand your need. Humble yourself. You've got to see. You've got to admit. You've got to confess. You've got to forsake sin 
You've got to turn from the over-desire and turn to the one who desires you the deepest. I remember when I was 20 years old, I was in the car and I was driving to some place where I could do work, but also to some place where I could engage in sin. And this was struggling. I was struggling with this. And I was wondering, what do I do? And my knuckles on the steering wheel are tightening. And, and my hands are getting white. And I'm starting to sweat because I'm like, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't want to enter into this sin. I want to fight against it. What do I do? And as I was doing that, I was trying to figure it out. And I just felt like, you know, I can't get away from this sin. I can't get away. Lord, help me, help me get away. And he directed my attention towards him and his work on my behalf rather than my effort. And it's like he gently, spiritually took my hands and took them apart from grasping on to the thing that I needed. And through meditating on his word, his spirit helped me to resist. And you know, all of that struggle just melted away. I didn't go to the place of work and I didn't engage in sin in that way. I was freed because he resisted on my behalf. And it's not about our effort. It's about Jesus' effort in your place. And he's fought it for you, and he's won it for you. So we've got to repent. But it's not just enough to turn from the people and things that you are unfaithful with in your over-desires. You've also got to turn to God and rejoice in him through Christ. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Verse 10, in the humility of your repentance, he will exalt you. Friends, you've got to look at Jesus. You've got to look at God's redeeming love in Jesus. The gospel is not just something that brings us into faith. If you've been a Christian for two minutes or you've been a Christian for 45 years, the gospel is also the way that you grow. It's the same grace. It's the same miraculous love of him unfolding himself on the cross on your behalf that will transform you, that will help you to enter into conflict in a way that you haven't imagined possible. He'll do it. He'll do it. You've got to look at God's redeeming love. In combination with seeing and acknowledging and adoring Christ through faith, Jesus is our all in all. And you've got to see that daily. And you've got to live in that daily. And you've got to recall your heart to that daily. And you've got to call each other to that daily. And you've got to remind one another of that daily. John Newton wrote this. He says, though we must feel hourly cause for shame and humiliation for what we are in ourselves, we have cause to rejoice continually in Christ Jesus, who, as he is revealed unto us under the various names, characters, relations, and offices, which he bears in Scripture, holds out to our faith a balm for every wound, a cordial for every discouragement, and a sufficient answer to every objection which sin or Satan can suggest against our peace. If we are guilty, he is our righteousness. If we are sick, he is our infallible physician. If we are weak, helpless, and defenseless, he is the compassionate and faithful shepherd who has taken charge of us and will not suffer anything to disappoint our hopes or to separate us from his love. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust and has engaged to guide us by his counsel, support us by his power, and at length to receive us to his glory that we may be with him forever. Now, how can that be? How can that be? Friends, on the cross, Jesus took your place, paying the penalty for your adultery with God. In his death, in his resurrection, he overthrew the powers that would keep you from him. 
And he gives you free and gracious and loving approach to him. Free and gracious, loving approach. He gives you his spirit after his ascension so that you might have comfort in affliction, victory over darkness, hope in the midst of despair. He loves you. And he's done everything in heaven and earth to pursue you. He intercedes for you right now, even when you fail. He's the beginning of your faith. He's the outcome of your faith. He's everything in between. Will you deny such a one as this, who loves you so? Friends, if you're straying right now, return to him. Return to him. Turn from the things you've been desiring and turn to him first and foremost in your life. Or if you've never turned to him, turn to him now. Turn to him now. He's a loving husband. He's a healer. He's a friend. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. His love is the only love that is truly steadfast. Will you drink deeply of his love this morning? Will you eat of his love this morning? Will you remember as we're about to come to the table of his love this morning? It's there to encourage you, to give you hope. Okay, friends, so in summary, first we covered our need for Jesus in conflict. The key point is that we need to know Jesus in conflict because there's something wrong going on inside of us. There's something wrong in the way that we handle conflict. Second, we cover the spiritual adultery of our hearts. The key point is that when we allow our hearts to turn from the true husband to people and things and circumstance for our significance, security, confidence, and identity, our hearts have wandered from the only one who would truly actually love us. These other things can't do that. Third, we covered God's jealousy about our wondering. The key point is that God is zealous to do whatever it takes to regain the affection of our hearts, even conflict with others to regain our affection. He loves us too much to leave us as we are. And finally, we cover the dynamics of repentance and faith. The key point is to regularly turn from the things and people you think you need and draw near to him as he draws near to you. He's the only one who can fulfill all your needs. He's the only one who can bear the weight of all your needs. And he has done so. And he will continue to do so. Because Jesus endured the ultimate conflict on your behalf, he frees you to engage in conflict in his way. He frees you to engage in conflict in his way. He frees you from engaging in conflict proudly. Why? He had to die for you. He had to die in your place. Only when you see that will you be able to let go of your tendency to fight in conflict. He frees you from engaging in conflict fearfully also. How did he do that? He did die for you. He loves you. He gave himself for you. And only when you see his work on your behalf, because he loves you, will you be able to let go of your tendency to flee in conflict. As the knowledge of him and what he's done for you reclaims your heart, you can engage in conflict with freedom. What do you want to do this week then as a result? I'd ask you to think about this and do this in your home meetings as you meet together and study the word together and seek him together. Understand that conflict is one way God works in our lives. We miss that. We think it's the other spiritual disciplines, the ways that we grow the best. He uses conflict significantly and often and well and deeply. It's important. Also, identify what drives ungodly conflict in your life. What are you holding on to? What are your over-desires? Talk about those. Pray about those together. Identify them in one another. Have some accountability, saying, hey, I need to see some progress in this area. 
You won't be perfect right away, but you'll get feedback from one another. And you'll be able to have brothers and sisters say, I do see that growth. I testify to that growth in you. I see the Lord working in you in that way. Recognize the way that you handle conflict normally. Do you fight? Do you tend to spill out into fight? Or do you tend to withdraw and, and try to avoid things? God wants neither one of those options for you. Don't forget spiritual warfare and the mighty one who fights on your behalf and that you're in him. And remember the other person. God wants renovation to go on in their lives as well. See other people as God sees you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that, um, that you've entered into the ultimate conflict on our behalf in the person of your son, Jesus. We're grateful that we don't have the weight Uh, The things and the people around us just don't have the weight of our identity, but you've taken that weight and you give us freedom in that. You've said to us that we're to take your yoke upon us and learn from you, for your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And so we ask to do that now with the things that are over-desires in our hearts and our lives. Teach us, Lord. We sit at your feet. Thank you for standing in for us and being our Savior, our fullness, our life, our friend. Be with us now as we come to the Lord's table, we ask in Jesus' name.